Hey, everybody, welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. In this episode, we are excited to welcome back Jacob Cook, the co-founder and CEO of WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Jacob is usually based in Beijing, where he oversees the China operations for WPIC. However, today he is joining us from Tokyo, where WPIC has a significant and growing presence. We thought it would be perfect timing for him to join us and tell us what he's seeing in Japan and give us an update on the country's booming e-commerce landscape. We cover all the major topics one would expect if looking to enter the Japan market as a new entrant, including a high-level overview of e-commerce in Japan, emerging consumer trends and preferences, key regulation and legal requirements that foreign brands need to be aware of when entering the Japanese e-commerce market, the role of social media, influencer marketing, and live streaming, and Japan's unique logistics and distribution systems landscape, and some of the challenges it may present for foreign brands who are unfamiliar. Enjoy. Our strategy specifically is to focus and to get as many Asian markets up and running as possible because we know that acquisition costs and seasonality is going to change really quickly. So one source that we can move around internally and move ad dollars around to back that up. So if all of a sudden, like, you know, 618, 11, 11, and then there's golden holidays and super sales on Rakuten and all these other things, that we want to be able to cover all of those. So we want to be able to basically shoot our product shots, use the, some of the AI tools and the generative out there to modify for the markets. but basically do that in low-cost markets like China, for example, bring as much of that material to Japan as possible. And then what's coming next year, what we're really excited about is a lot of the AI that you're going to see coming out in 20, late 2023 and 2024 is a lot on the business intelligence. So that's going to be able to take in a ton of factors. And just some basic examples that we, I'm going to use, but you know, weather has a huge impact on apparel sales. You can imagine how many more umbrellas are sold in a rainy day than a, a sunny day, for example. So when you start to process stuff like that, and you can move dollars around in almost real time with the support of the business intelligence AI coming out, your logistics network, it's irrelevant. We don't need five or six different partners in different markets that would be impossible. You'd have to export, re-export, re-import. So we want to keep in our bonded network with one, we look at this as one batch of inventory that if we're running super sales, we're just going to move it back and forth based on where that pot week is because that's how Asia operates. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half of the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market that no globally-minded organization should ignore. But entering markets like China, Japan, or Southeast Asia is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. However, times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success growing their key markets in APAC. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies grow in the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful Asia market entry and growth strategies by interviewing the experts who've done it before and truly understand what it takes to be successful in the region. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation. Brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Jacob, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Todd. Why don't you first tell us about WPIC's business operations in Japan and what is bringing you there now? Yeah, we obviously through COVID didn't make the progression of building out the capacity here in Japan like we had wanted to. And it's been great. We've been back about four times now. Um, you know, visiting clients, hiring more people, um, and mainly actually, it looks like we have finally closed on our warehouse space. Uh, so very excited about that. Um, that was really one of the missing pieces that we've had here is to really build out a state-of-the-art facility. 
we are now just going to be right beside Narita Airport, where the vast majority of cargo is coming in and out of the country, um, literally on the edge of the uh, of the actual airport. Um, could probably throw a baseball and hit a runway. Not that I'm going to do that, of course. Yeah, um, and we're really excited about that. That's going to that's going to um, you know, in terms of service to our customers, in terms of being able to uh, upgrade fulfillment. Um, really a game changer. And, you know, in terms of consumption, Japan has just been absolutely booming as part of our business. Um, and we're really excited about the opportunities there. Why don't you give us an overview of the current e-commerce landscape in Japan and just tell us what's going on, what are the major platforms, stuff like that? Yeah, so quite a bit different uh, in terms of if you're looking at a China comparison, but Amazon is a big player there. And without the firewall, you know, what we call Western social media companies are big sources of traffic. So Instagram, things that are different there. Uh, Rakuten is a big platform and they compete head to head with Amazon. Um, very well established. You know, a lot of brands like to be a part of it, maybe a little higher on the customer acquisition costs. Um, but a little bit lower on the uh, platform fees. Amazon's got a little bit higher fees in some categories, lower acquisition costs, always a trade-off. Um, you know, Shopify is becoming really big there too as well and people putting up their own platforms. And the fact that it's not as closed an ecosystem as some places means there's really a lot of arbitrage that goes on for where you can get your sources of traffic. So, um, you know, we look at, at some of the same principles is that, you know, consolidated backend. So one warehouse, one customer support team, uh, product placements, product uh, images, trying to match and use as much of that, of course, for all your properties. Um, so you basically say would say have those three. And then you might, you know, fashion brands might want to look at like a Zozo or something like that as well. A little bit more specialized, an aggregator into a specific category. Um, you know, going forward in the future, we're probably going to see Amazon and, and Shopify garner more share as organizations. They move faster um, than Rakuten does. It's a it's a much slower environment compared to some of the other markets in Asia. But the consumption is strong. Um, you know, people uh, have very high incomes, highest family income that we have anywhere in Asia. Actually, by by a lot. Um, so overall, uh, people are used to shopping online. We've still seen that growth. And in terms of our brands, and our clients have been actively pushing us to get in there uh, and build out those capabilities, which obviously now that the borders are open, uh, we're very excited to do. Do you think that more vertically focused platforms are going to rise up? Do they have the capability to sustain and be relevant and potentially challenge the more omni marketplaces like the Amazons and Rakutens at all? Are you seeing any of that? And especially with regards to Asia? I think absolutely because of the way the traffic is generated. I mean, line is, is going to be a huge player in terms of how traffic is, is generated. Uh, Google's still a player. Uh, Yahoo's still a player. So when you have so much search and so much influence coming from the social networks, it allows those platforms a much lower barrier to entry to play. Um, the, the thing where you wouldn't say in a market like China, maybe Southeast Asia, even not so much either, is that, you know, you kind of, there's very well-established players, you know, like a Shopee, a Lazada, or a Tmall, and a JD, Douyin in China, that the amount of investment that would need to go into something like that to really dominate in Southeast Asia, China is, is prohibitive and probably deep into the 10 figures. Whereas 
you know, word of mouth and social media is a very low barrier because of the potential reach that you could garner um, and do very well. So yeah, I mean, we're going to see that ever changing dynamic. And that's why we look at, you know, the same principles of single source inventory, uh, you know, consolidated customer support, and really being that trade partner that can function over all of those and keeping an eye on um, what's coming down the pipe. It, again, you should always be able to add more front ends to your e-commerce operation fairly easily. And we look at following those principles because what's there today can be a heck of a lot different than what's there tomorrow and, and next year. Okay. Well, speaking of tomorrow and next year, let me ask you, what are some of the emerging consumer trends and preferences in Japan that, that foreign brands should and need to be aware of? I think the one of the things that we see that changes so much is, is on the fashion and apparel. Um, the the styles and the changes there change so fast and so often it can be tough for foreign brands if they're not really focused on 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 Japan. You know, we've seen a couple of examples over the years that where brands certainly have known this about Japan and they've actually hired Japanese designers where they take their brand name almost only and produce products that are very specific for Japan. Um, other than that, I you know the consumption habits. Don't change that often. If your product is innovative uh, and it's new, even if it's got a higher price point, the Japanese consumer is much more um, likely to, to purchase that, be less price conscious than they are in other markets. We like that. Health and wellness coming out of COVID, we've seen it globally being a trend. Certainly, Japan is no different. Um, athleisure, big. Uh, people taking better care of themselves, eating better. These are all you know big trends coming out of COVID. Uh what about some of the hot sectors for cross-border e-commerce in Japan? Yeah, cross-border e-commerce, it, it's pretty big because I think there's some regulatory approvals. So nutraceuticals in the vitamin sector, which is is growing quite a bit, um, that's big opportunity for cross-border because some of the regulatory approvals make it very difficult, even for local brands, uh, to get those approvals. But exceptions are granted as long as there's no illegal ingredients in there that they're actually fairly low barrier to entry uh, in the cross-border market as well is that um, consumers are willing to accept a longer delivery time than you'd see in other markets. I think, you know, one to two days is the norm over most parts of Asia, certainly in the big cities, you know, five to seven is is pretty regular for some cross-border and that you don't see the high return and cancellation rates like you would get in other markets with a five to seven day delivery time. So a couple of things to to note there that makes logistics a little bit easier. Um, And it makes it quite easier, frankly, easier to enter the market in the first place. Yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, speaking of nutraceuticals, something in the pharmasphere in general, I'm, I'm wondering what are some of the key regulations and legal requirements that are typically top of the list that you need to approach with your clients um, that you get asked about or that you're proposing they really need to learn and understand that, you know, foreign brands really need to be aware of when entering the Japanese e-commerce market. Uh, And furthermore, how does that, you know, even and, and I'll lead into something like dovetailing into something like packaging? Well, in most cases, I mean, WPIC and part of the services that we offer is to handle most of that regulatory. So in the you use a really good example of nutraceuticals because there's actually 50,000 banned ingredients for Japan. Now, if you understand this space very well, 
you know, that might actually only boil down to 1400 because they have so many of the same names um, for the, for, for the same product. So that can be a little bit tricky is where you might find four or five that are on the band ingredients list. You check yours isn't, but it actually is that. So there's a lot of that, but I mean, WPIC will take care of that for you. Relabeling is something we do at the warehouse level, um, usually through stickering. It would kind of depend on, you know, hero products. We've, we've done new packaging before, but really out of the gate, we kind of recommend that, you know, let, let us handle the regulatory. Once we are live and we've got the approval, we're, you're pretty much off to the races. And we do that all up in the building and onboarding phases. Um, you know, let us handle the stickering and the regulatory. And as we build up a sufficient market, we say, hey, this is something that we want to really deep dive. Then the next step would be to move past cross-border e-commerce, go at the, the actual authority the, from the FDA approvals uh, to allow your products to be sold domestically and imported domestically. And that even opens up retail and other opportunities as well for your particular product. But there's a bunch of baby steps that you can go through that process that where you can start selling, start getting your data, start making that relationship with your customers, then just move step by step uh, into something that when you've seen that opportunity, which is, you know, full fledged, what we would call at that point. Would you say like you 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 throw out that number of like fifty thousand could boil down to fourteen hundred type of thing? But is this are those numbers comparable to what you would find in North America or in Europe? Or is that it? Just sounds like a huge number. Is that specific? Are they a little bit more stringent on that stuff? They are a little bit more stringent on that stuff, I think, than everybody else is. But however, that list hasn't changed in a long time. Uh, and that's what's kind of good about that. We see, you know, in the last 10 years in China, we've seen that list modify three or four times and modify quite significantly. Um, we haven't seen that in Japan. That list has stayed pretty static. Um, so it makes it makes it things a little bit easier too. So you're not going to say, hey, you're approved today and a couple of years down the road, very little chance that you're not going to be approved, for example. Um, so that's good. Maybe it's a little bit higher barrier to entry in terms of the regulatory, but you know, once you're in, you're in. And that that's a very positive thing. Is this something that you think the companies you work with and, and all of your clients, they maybe don't have the necessary muscle built around having to understand this? And maybe that comes from because they're native to their own markets as an individual or as a company. So it just comes with the territory. It's not something that they necessarily had to go ahead and learn from scratch. Whereas now going to Japan, this is something that they really just, they don't necessarily need to hire and find all the ingredients to learn how to bake this understanding into the company themselves. It's really something that they just, your recommend is just lean on us, let us take care of this because this isn't something, this is a bit of a one and done and we can just walk you through this the investment for them would be so high, whereas you already have it to be able to gift. I'm assuming that that's probably the approach you take with a lot of new entrants. Yeah. And actually, there's a lot of variants. So we really would, in the initial process, find out where those strengths and weaknesses are. So in a lot of cases, the brand is going to come to the table with a lot of expertise about the products, competitors, Maybe they've got experience in a different market, but a similar competitive set, things that they've done and done well to compete. And then we're going to bring the, the market expertise and the regulatory expertise uh, to Japan. And that to us is kind of a match made in heaven. Um, and then from there, different brands have different um, interests in learning about it. In a lot of cases, hey, 
over to you. We we not really interested in developing those expertise, but sometimes and and it can be really interesting where you have a couple of people, um, especially with Japan. I think people are very very interested in Japan overall. That um, you know they want to come there, they want to see the operation, they want to learn about this, and you know we're happy with either of those configurations. Quite frankly, what is the role? of social media and even influencer marketing in in driving some of this e-commerce growth in Japan for for any of the brands or verticals or you can actually cut it up into different verticals if you want to if it if it's less or more or more specific in different verticals um and then even into something that I know WPIC is really invested in and gone heavy on which is the live streaming we are very heavy on the live stream and we can see the trend because we've been operating in other markets that know it's starting to be a thing in Japan and it's going to continuously be a bigger and bigger thing. Um, it, it, you know, in general, social media is very important. Um, it, we see through especially Rakuten platforms is that there hasn't been a lot of additional inventory. In fact, the platform through our eight years of essentially of working with it, has made very little changes into how it operates in that time. Um, very few upgrades. Uh, and the ad products are exactly the same as they were back then. So you're kind of going to get to a point that if you want sort of high traffic, high growth, you're going outside a lot more than you are on the platform. That's kind of different than other markets. So social media is huge. Instagram influencers, they're big. And they're generally a little bit better priced than you see in some of the other markets in Asia. So kind of like right between China and Korea, for example, in terms of expected ROI um, and, and you know, what uh, flat rate fees and things like that. But absolutely, I mean, it, it, it is the biggest important thing and it's always going to be uh, until we see some major platform upgrades, which nothing's been announced to our knowledge. So we're going to continuously see uh, further and further. So you've got the Facebooks, the Instagrams that you would have, but you also have Line, which is is unique to Japan. Um, and Line is a very innovative company. They're coming up with a lot of new products and advertising, and um, very bullish on 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 what's going on there. Is there a TikTok version happening in uh, in Japan, or is TikTok in Japan? Well, there is TikTok. There in is Japan. TikTok in Japan. It's not as yeah, yeah. There's not. It's just not as big as uh, you've seen it. Probably Instagram is pretty huge in Japan. Um, they probably have a better now that they're focused on live form video and short form video. And Twitter is also pretty big too. Um, you're probably going to see actually those U.S. companies do even better than TikTok, specifically in Japan, in my guess. And that's just because of habit, I think. What is the landscape around even something like customer service? Because even for myself, uh, as I shop a lot and do a lot of e-commerce from all over the world and AliExpress and you name it, um, actually going to see uh, customer service or talk to customer service, instead of even having the pop-up window on the website where the chat is, now they're just saying, hey, just Facebook message us, just tweet us. Let's just go talk over there. Let us solve your issues over there. Does, is that a thing over there too? The thing about Japan is the contact rates on the e-commerce properties are actually extremely low. The lowest that we see in any market out in Asia. Um, so that is interesting because you obviously don't need the capacity to handle the inquiries. But also, you have to make sure that almost you're preempting those questions so that you've got much longer PDPs, product pages, and you've got very detailed descriptions so that you've almost thought about the questions that consumers can ask beforehand that don't. 
and you've put the information there for them. So we see that trend a lot where they, there's a much longer product page because people don't like to get in touch. And I think that's probably a cultural thing. But um, after sales is a thing. Um, and yeah, that, and that can be over a wide range, but more likely it's going to be tied to where they learned about that product. So if it was a Rakuten purchase, they're going to get in touch through Rakuten. Quick question about time to revenue and your thoughts around that and, and what that kind of timeline looks like. We like to always kind of launch in 90 days or less. Uh, it, almost always, it's going to really depend upon the brand getting inventory available. Like There could be some with the regulatory. Like maybe we do find some banned ingredients in Nutraceutical and we've got to rebatch that without them. Maybe it's not too important, like a binding ingredient or something that's not allowed. Um, but in general, I think Rakuten can be a little bit slower because there is a site visit that's involved. So Rakuten in North America, especially on the cross-border, will go visit your company. Now, they're doing that a lot quicker now. But over the last couple of years, and COVID obviously didn't help. Um, those site visits were, were very hard to schedule. It could be up to six months in advance. Um, we're seeing barriers to entry in terms of Shopify go live. 30, 45 days now. Um, and with our new logistics, larger logistics center at Narita, uh, that's going to be even quicker. What's the premise of why Rakuten wants to actually add friction to their platform? <laughs> I was just talking about this. Um, I was just talking about this. And what we kind of suspect is uh, you can't get that answer, right? Um, and you see, but it's been like that for a while. And just the organization itself doesn't change. Like once something's in place, that's the way it is. And people kind of forget why it was even put in place. But I mean, I would suspect that the legal teams and finance teams had a huge say in how the onboarding process was going to go. Um, so that those policies were put in place from a compliance point of view and, I think in the long run, it's helped certainly the consumers of Rakuten to have a trust level with the platform. So it's, you know, a good thing in certain cases. But yeah, I mean, you know, do would we rather be live in a month as opposed to three? Of course, everybody would be. Um, but that really is the case. So I mean, but in a lot of cases, what we look at, if we say, hey, we've got a three platform launch, Shopify and Amazon and a Rakuten. You know, we're just going to go live as they as they come on board, and that can be kind of nice sometimes too. To not have three um, going all at once, you start to you know delve into it for the brands and um, stick in places that they're comfortable. So more than likely, most people have a Shopify globally. They're probably on Amazon already, and then the third one comes down the pipe, which is the Rakuten, and you get a good idea of where you should be moving your ad dollars around based on how your acquisition costs are coming in. Yeah. All right. Well, speaking of data mining, does Rakuten have its own product line, like a Kirkland or Amazon Basics? Yeah, certainly in telecom stuff, they do. Not as much as you would see, though, certainly not to the extent of a Kirkland or anything like that. Yeah. Okay. I always thought that was a somewhat savvy move by Amazon. Um, I don't think... Uh, the the product lines that they actually turned into Amazon Basics, the the others in the space were probably not too thrilled. But exactly, there is there's that. <laughs> okay, I'll I'll move on. I want to get this, uh, you know, keep this ball rolling. Japan geographically, you know, and we're getting into logistics, which is a passion of mine. Like it, just the way that streets, uh, vehicles, parking, it, it, you know, everything is vertical. That you know, the size of the building, the apartments, all this kind of stuff. So. It's a different landscape um, than a lot of other, almost every other place in the world. How does that 
affect e-commerce and what challenges could that present to foreign brands? I don't think it would present too many challenges to foreign brands because certainly it's the same situation for local or foreign brands, right? I mean, everyone's got it, got it, has the same set of circumstances. I mean, in terms of our site selection, we're very careful to stay close to, to Narita. Narita is a massive cargo port, uh, as, as if you've ever flown in there. I mean, next time pay attention, you probably notice that half the planes are actually cargo planes. I mean, it's fascinating to watch how much goes in and out uh, of that airport. But you're going to see a lot of domestic air freight too as well, as opposed to things being put on um, you know, cars. But there's a couple also advantages, right? You've got once you sort of fly into those city centers, you have high population density. And for logistics in terms of last mile, that's something that we really like to see. Um, you know, that that allows for quicker concentrations. Um, but yeah, very, very good logistics network. I mean, there's plenty of options in terms of last mile delivery in Japan, which is really cool. Um, you know, leave it at your door, wait for somebody to be home, pick your own delivery time, leave it at the 7-Eleven down the corner from your house where you go to pick up later. Um, and people can pick pick whatever they want, whatever they feel comfortable with, based mainly on the value of the package that's coming to the door. So it's interesting. A little higher price point, as most things are in Japan. Um, but, you know, delivery times are pretty good. And you just need to understand that you need to be sort of tapped in as close as you can to uh, to the air freight network. Quick question about payments um, and uh, payment modes, payment platforms. How does that work for e-commerce in Japan? <laughs> Inside the platforms, and even Shopify does a really good job of this and just sort of handling that. But the payment diversity is insane. I mean, there's 15 or 20 different payment gateways that are used at any given time. And if you've ever been there and you notice, I mean, it's not just e-commerce. It's also everywhere. You'll notice there's going to be what do we accept is going to be this massive chart uh, with 15 or 20 logos in it, maybe more even at some places. Um, but, you know, it, it boils down to you know, how good is the software on the way out? And they understand your preferences. And of course, on platforms, you've got memberships. So not something I think that the brands need to concern themselves with. But overall, as a business, there's a lot, <laughs> you know, and, and, and Google Pay, GPay, Alipay, WeChat Pay are all there. Apple Pay is there. And then there's a whole bunch of indigenous ones as well. So, I mean, all that to, to really uh, derive that consumers... They have no issue with online payments and the multitudes of payment systems. There's a lot of trust. I'd say that's the case now. Yes, I'd say that we've developed over the last five years into the situation we are now. So yes, that's that's not the way it always was. Um, but that's, it's great to see that that's the way that it is today. Um, so that, it's a pretty seamless process. And I think it's also, as more and more come online, it's going to be pretty seamless integration. The consumer is not going to see any interruption at all. Okay, awesome. Last question. I have to throw this one to you. How do, can you explain how WPIC can serve and service multiple APAC markets with a single source of inventory and ERP? Well, the, the ERP is a thing. And what we basically are able to do, and we use this through bonded, like the new facility that we have is a bonded facility. So we can move products inside geographical regions based on where that demand is. So look at there's, we all know, and our strategy specifically is to focus and to get as many Asian markets up and running as possible, because we know that acquisition costs and seasonality is going to change really quickly. So one source that we can move around internally and move ad dollars around to back that up. So if all of a sudden, you know, and like, you know, 618, 11, 11, and then there's golden holidays and super sales on Rakuten and all these other things that we want to be able to cover all of those. So we want to be able to basically shoot our product shots, 
use the, some of the AI tools and the generative out there to modify for the markets, but basically do that in low-cost markets like China, for example. Bring as much of that material to Japan as possible. And then what's coming next year, what we're really excited about is a lot of the AI that you're going to see coming out in 20, late 2023 and 2024 is a lot on the business intelligence. So that's going to be able to take in a ton of factors. And just some basic examples that I'm going to use, but you know, weather has a huge impact on apparel sales. You can imagine how many more umbrellas are sold in a rainy day than a, a sunny day, for example. So when you start to process stuff like that, and you can move dollars around in almost real time with the support of the business intelligence AI coming out, your logistics network, it's irrelevant. We don't need five or six different partners in different markets that would be impossible. You'd have to export, re-export, re-import. So we want to keep in our bonded network with one... We look at this as one batch of inventory that if we're running super sales, we're just going to move it back and forth based on where that hot week is because that's how Asia operates. It's not... You've got a website and there might be a Black Friday or Cyber Monday sale, but in general, a dot-com is very consistent day over day. That's not the case over here. So what brands previously have had to do is try to guess what those inventories are going to be, but the numbers are changing so fast. The influencers could... You could just go viral, for example. You're not able to service it in Japan because you've got too much inventory in China. We move that back and forth now so quickly. And with the AI, which is based on more predictive math as opposed to where we're at today, you know, business intelligence tells you where you, how you did and where you are today. AI is going to tell you what that, like, that's going to be in five days and 10 days and 15 days based off sort of linear regression, right? That's what's exciting. And that's what we're prepared for. Um, and that's the future and that's what's coming. So obviously that's some pretty exciting stuff. And that's what, but when we talk about single source, your all of your inventory being managed by WPIC can service all of those markets. So you look at this as one set of inventory, not having to manage five or six different imports. So you're sending one container, one container probably to one of the major warehouses that we have primarily in China. And then we're moving around accordingly based on what's going to be running in four or five days or six days. That's amazing. So the, now it's no longer up to the brand to have in, inventory in Singapore, Vietnam, Philippines, Japan, Korea, China. We can do it all from one place. It's going to be even ahead next year. It's going to be what's going to happen in five days. We'll have to have a, we'll have to have a new term for that. Predictive. Predictive time. <laughs> Jacob, you 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 always bring it. Um, it is just goods, goods, goods. Education on point. The fire hose of educational stuff about anything to do with e-commerce or marketing in Asia. Thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Okay, for everybody who's listening to the podcast and you want to come and see us live on video, don't forget to go to the WPIC YouTube channel. And for those of you watching us on YouTube and you need your hands and your your hands and your eyes for other things, make sure you go check out our our podcast. It's on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, everywhere you get your podcasts. We're over there as well for the audio version. And for me, uh, Todd Emley, your host, and Jacob Cook, CEO, co-founder, WPIC Marketing and Technologies. We say goodnight and we'll see you next time. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking at the Asia-Pacific region for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands, just like yours, enter China, Japan, and Southeast Asia. 
I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation. And if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co. And be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.